0: Sometimes it's not obvious the way a place is beautiful. That's a challenge that I have for myself is every single week, I'll give you an example. Last week, this museum that we've been working with, we're doing this seven acre landscape there. They asked us, that project is almost done, so they asked us to look at a potential expansion of the parking lot on a different part of the site. And someone in our office is like, "I'm going to design a parking lot." And I was like, what if you, we could make a really beautiful? parking lot like everything is every place is beautiful in not in an obvious way Mm -hmm. but what if the most important tool we had as designers was to walk into a place and listen or look for the thing that is beautiful that nobody else sees and our job is to you know yeah be its voice
1: Welcome back to another episode of our podcast, Pencils Down. Today we are really excited because we have in our table the first landscape architect we're going to engage in conversation with. She is Sara Zodi. She's the principal of Studio Zodi, a landscape architecture firm based in New York. We heard she was going to be here in town in Columbus for a special talk for Exhibit Columbus. She designed one of the installations located in Millrace Park, so we couldn't miss the opportunity to talk to her. Besides being a landscape architect, she also has a background in sociology and statistics. Stay with us to listen about her philosophy, her way of thinking about land, and the importance of landscape architecture and the architecture project. We would like to start this conversation hearing a little more about your story, who you are, where you come from, and what do you do.
0: Oh, Emma! Big questions. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I know the answers to those questions. Um, Let's see. I grew up in the Gulf Coast uh, region. I grew up going back and forth between Texas and Louisiana, Um, and you know I unlike probably most people in Columbus, I did not grow up with much of a sense of what design was. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, so I took a very scenic route to get to landscape architecture, no pun intended. Um, But it took me a long time to even understand, you know, how prevalent design is in our everyday lives, you know, understand the various disciplines, and then have some clarity about where I wanted to be within that and what, what the power of that might be. Um, but yeah, I, I think Hurricane Katrina was um, a turning point for me in a lot of ways because I, it really made me focus a little bit more on architecture and urban planning and landscape and ecology, all the things that, you know, and I think reflecting post Katrina on all of the things that, um, could manifest such a thing. I knew that I wanted to engage in a realm of design that was really complex. So ultimately, I think that's the big arc. Um, I was already interested in people and place in a broad sense, but I didn't know where that would, would take me. But, um, so I ended up studying sociology and statistics and city planning, and then I got to landscape architecture, which everyone thought was crazy at the time. Going back, keep, you know, continuing to go back to school. Um, but it, I, you know, I have this mantra that whatever choice you make is the right one. And, you know, I've made sense of the long journey to get to landscape architecture and I like it here. <laughs> You're like, done. No more questions.
2: That's, that's <laughs> all. thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, Really touched on a lot of the the big questions that I wanted to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, you have an interesting path of starting with you said sociology or psychology sociology sociology yeah. and then statistics. Um, so I mean, maybe dive in a little bit more about why you are doing this work. Mm,
0: yeah, I mean, um, I think immediately. I went after the storm the year or two after that. I thought, oh, I'll do architecture. I was already in college at the time. And I would have done architecture if when I went to the registrar's office and asked to be transferred to the architecture department, if they hadn't said, we don't actually have architecture at this university. <laughs> so one could say I touched a bullet, I guess. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I could have. I could have entered architecture and... Not that architecture is a bullet, but I,
1: I, <laughs> well. I'm talking
0: to two architects in an architecture city. Um, but but I all of that to say, I don't know if I would have ended up where I'm at if that had happened. Um, and so I thought, oh, you know, well, I'll do architecture in graduate school. What would be a good kind of foundation other than that? And I thought sociology could be an interesting way to look at cities and understand mm-hmm. cities. Um and when I came to learn from sociology was qualitative analysis and how important that is and how valuable that can be. And I, I think that's a big part of how um, I practice. I, I, I think it's evident if you think about the um, installation that we have at Exhibit Columbus. Um, but I grew a confidence around qualitative understandings of place. What I felt less confident about in sociology was the – speculative part you know I felt really like an incredible foundation in analysis but I was like it's not enough to analyze these things I want to project new ideas into them so you know statistics <clears throat> was you know felt like a little bit closer to that I also liked the pairing of being able to understand things qualitatively and quantitatively what I came to learn from statistics was that statistics, despite it using numbers, is also qualitative in a sense. It's an art and not a science. Um, and I think that I also use that in the way that I process information today. When I So from there, I thought, okay, well, now it's time to go do my mark. And then I learned you have to have a really great portfolio of things to do an MARC. Yes. And I was like, well, I haven't drawn since I was seven. So I don't know how that's going to go. And I um, just didn't feel confident. Um, so I did a master of city planning thinking that was, you know, adjacent and I got my master of city planning and I worked as an urban planner and it still felt like my job was still to just basically diagram things and, you know, color code ideas into land use and then write reports about them. And, um, we need urban planning, but I still had this itch even, you know, despite practicing in the field of planning, this itch of, man, there's so many, like, there's so much to, room to innovate in design. And and I feel like all of this stuff that I've learned along the way through my personal experiences and my academic training that I want to manifest and explore in a realm that's more, um, that's beyond planning, you know. And so that's why I ended up one more time. And by that time, I was well-read in the different design disciplines and f- really felt like, you know, I'll, I'll say, I, I'm saying this in a room of architects, but I really feel that it's unfair that landscape architecture is the one that has the adjective, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it sounds like a subfield of architecture, um, like we don't call y'all building architects, you know. <laughs> oh, I've never thought of that. That's true. But like, what if y'all were called building architects and we were architects, you know? Because it's mm-hmm. a, it's a landscape architecture is a hugely expansive field. It's literally everything that's not inside.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know. <laughs> wow,
1: really deep thought. <laughs> um.
0: I mean, I think if if we really ask ourselves why that is, it's largely just because of the professional histories of landscape architecture formalizing itself and calling itself landscape architecture only happened in the mid-late 19th century, mm-hmm. whereas architecture, capital A, I don't know, arguably is like 15th century. So um, that's not to say people weren't making landscapes and making buildings for all of human history. It's, it's, you know, just talking specifically about professional histories and the professionalization of those things. So I'll give you guys that, you know, reason. You can run with that. But, you know, it's interesting to think about how that shapes how we practice with each other, Mm -hmm. architects and landscape architects, um, and how we view landscape architecture as a result of that. When, you know, I, you know, and there are architects that, feel like landscape architecture is, you know, putting shrubs around the building. Mm. And, you know, we see architecture as putting buildings in the landscape, which I would (laughs) argue is probably more how we should be practicing um, than the reverse. So, yeah, I I could keep rambling, but, you know, I want to give you guys space to react to things and ask questions. I
2: think it's really interesting the way that you are breaking this down and... um it comes back to the idea that words are very powerful. The way we define things is very powerful. And um, I wanna touch on something that I I read about you prior. And um, it was about how when you, uh, it was a quote from um, something I believe you wrote, uh, Dimensions of Citizenship. Mm. Um, And you were talking about wrestling with the idea or the word land. And I just really want to hear you talk more about that, because Mm -hmm. I found that incredibly fascinating that that is such a concept, That's it's such a man-made construct, Mm -hmm. and uh, we are working in the constructs of that design of man over time, Um, but in a lot of ways, we're trying to figure out how to operate within that, but also how to deconstruct it Mm -hmm. uh, to move forward because we don't know where we're going into the future. We're trying to figure that out. And so when I read that about you, I think maybe she's figuring some things out. (laughs) I'd like to hear a little bit more about that.
0: Definitely never really figuring things out, (laughs) just having different answers depending on when you catch me is mostly what happens. Um, Yeah, land is tough. I mean, here we are on indigenous land. You know, and it's like, whoa. how do we, that's like where we should be starting when we think about the word land. Um, and just, you know, land being at the center of conflict and war all over the planet at all times, how land has prompted colonization and enslavement and some really wretched elements of human history um, has been about land. And, um, so what does it mean for me as a black woman to be in a field where I'm being trained literally to shape land in a profession? You know, I, I mentioned landscape architecture as a profession started in the mid to late 19th century. That's not, you know, a coincidence that what was happening in the mid 19th century is chattel slavery, you know, and, um, and architecture itself is also implicated in the history of colonization. I mean, these are the tools the plan drawing you know the aerials all of these tools the grid all of these these are the tools for organizing power and and so here we are learning those conventions and using them and um the, the other thing i think about a lot is that landscape Architecture is actually used to recast the history of land. There's a reason why when you're walking around it, Columbus, for instance, that we don't see the presence. It's there, but we don't know how to see the presence of uh, indigenous people, you know, which our installation at, uh, exhibit Columbus tries to grapple with. The reason is because of landscape architecture and architecture that we literally were trained The the – the typologies of space and that we are taught to make are about recasting this into something else. Mm. And, um, so, you know, what do we do about that? What are the ways, is it even possible to use our tools that we have to subvert that, to challenge that, to shift trajectories and tell other narratives and empower, um, the presence and the history of, of place. So that is a big question for me. Um, it's something that's always on my mind that I don't, I never wanted to be a landscape architect in order to practice landscape architecture as I knew it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I wanted to be in this profession despite itself mm-hmm. because I felt like maybe there's a way to retool the toolbox and, and do
2: something else with it. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly powerful motive, and I think if one person can claim some space for its original existence, then anything else that happens around that can react to it, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I think that we often don't give ideas enough credit, Mm. right? So if an idea really can take fire, and... Creating that space and allowing there to be, um, like, a building thought of mm. in that space mm-hmm. uh, would make the building more receptive to the history. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yes. And
1: I wanted to ask you, as, for example, for us as students, sometimes we're given, like, a big site. Mm, and right. we mainly focus on the buildings. Right. And then, like... Few days before the deadline, we're just like okay, just <laughs> let's throw a bunch of three of trees and bushes. So it might sound a little redundant, but I wanted to ask you about the importance of also thinking about how to shape the landscape mm-hmm. in conversation with building architecture. Yeah, <laughs> it's on. Yeah,
0: yes. I love that.
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, I, I would challenge you. I know you're not my student, but here I am. (laughs) I would challenge you the next project you have in studio to do the opposite and see what happens, to start Mm -hmm. with the landscape.
1: And that's funny because that's... um, Before coming here, I come from Mexico. I was interested in landscape architecture, but I found this program, so it was a really good opportunity to come here. But it's funny that you say that because I feel that my process is a bit different than some of my classmates, and actually my project starts by thinking about the landscape. Mm. I always think about, this is that I want to have trees here and I want to have this open space here. And I want to like... So I kind of think the... Maybe, maybe you're inspiring (laughs) me to pursue like another degree. (laughs) This is a sign. (laughs) And, I, you know, I would
0: start by listening to the landscape. Before even, Mm -hmm. before saying, you know, I want this here, I want that. The landscape wants to be something. And what I always try to do is amplify what that landscape is wanting to be Mm, you know what is just even sometimes looking at the existing contours it's a sculpture already topography is a sculpture and there you are you know with the opportunity to highlight that and amplify that and you know just um, make its presence stronger and then you know Understanding, you know, what the topography is doing, why it's doing that, what is the presence of water and moisture, you know, mm-hmm. in the lower levels versus the higher levels. Can planting help emphasize that and make somebody who's moving through the landscape register the place that they're in, right? As we were saying, architecture and landscape architecture tend to do the opposite. Mm-hmm. Downplay what where you are and, and, and highlight this fabrication on top of it. But what if you really look at what the land is doing already? Where are the trees and why are they growing there? You know, why is this kind of plant growing here? And how do you want to move through it? Wait, even to, you know, to integrate it with building architecture, it's, you know, a sense of arrival. There is a... One of the reasons I love landscape architecture so much is it's like filmmaking in a way. You, you're really setting up a series of scenes. It's about movement. And, you know, it's not... You're not sitting sitting on a couch or sitting in the kitchen you're moving in it and so you're making scenes there's a foreground you know there's a middle ground there's a background at all times and you know so constructing scenes as you move through a place is at the heart of landscape architecture and in that choreography there's a building you know and then the you know the building has some engagement with, you know, the trees or the plants or the topography. Is is the building, a beacon sitting up high, you know, or is it actually, you know, integrated into some landform and disappears there? Is it framing your space? Is it holding, is it more of like a wall and it's like bookmarking that, the space? Um, so thinking about a building as part of a choreography of movement through the world. As opposed to like the thing that everything else emanates from, you know, it's it's a different way of thinking. I think a lot of the way we celebrate architecture is because it does the opposite, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Challenge this is a challenge to you both to see see what happens.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's really interesting, like to hear this way of thinking and, and like to challenge and to question the way we do things and the process we follow. So it's more like amplifying the experience of the site rather than mm-hmm. modifying it. Like to make it artificial, it's like, okay, the the landscape is already perfect because it's nature, just how it is. So how can we just like make that experience for the user more intense or more noticeable to their eyes? Because sometimes we just take it for granted and it's just like, oh, it's just grass. It's just trees, right. but we are not really thinking what it is trying to tell us. So it's like being the voice of the landscape. Absolutely. In a way, Absolutely. Like a translator.
0: And yeah. sometimes it's not obvious the way a place is beautiful. That's a challenge that I have for myself is every single – I'll give you an example. Last week, this museum that we've been working with, we're doing this seven-acre landscape there. They asked us – that project is almost done, so they asked us to look at a potential expansion of the parking lot on a different part of the site. And someone in our office is like, I'm going to design a parking lot. And I was like, what if you, we could make a really beautiful parking lot? Like, everything, is every place is beautiful, in, not in an obvious way. Mm-hmm. But what if the most important tool we had as designers was to walk into a place and listen or look for the thing that." is beautiful that nobody else sees. And our job is to, you know, yeah, be its voice as to use your word. I mean, what kind of design unravels from there is an interesting question to me. Yes.
2: Such a great conversation involving this. Yes. <laughs> I'd like to hear a little bit more about your process and, and maybe tap in a little bit uh, about how your installation at Mulberry's Park went and a little bit about the backstory of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting way to dovetail with this conversation because we had to do that here. You know, we tried to do that here. You guys could tell me if we were successful or not, but... um. Super. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I love it. Um,
1: I'm sad it's going down. I'm like, wait. I know. I, I know. It's you one that I
2: want to say.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was working in that installation. I, know. I helped build it, so I was like, it's kind of my baby, too. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is. I don't want it to go away. And I think it's a very successful installation, and I think it's the biggest one that mm-hmm. Exhibit
2: Columbus has had. So, it's sad. Yeah, yeah, it makes you feel like you're part of the land. Yes. Mm. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's. Yeah, that's exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to, in that case, amplify something about the landscape, but also something about the people of Columbus and what they were telling us. So when we were here in October of 22, I believe, doing the community engagement, you know, we asked people about the past, present, and future of Columbus, of Millrace Park specifically, excuse me. And it was what became clear was people's, a lot of, People's favorite stories and memories were embodied in that hill, mm. you know, the existing. The hill, um, and fun fact: my professor, when I was in school, designed Millrace Park. So it being the thirty-year anniversary it was a great time to circle back and have conversations with him, and and he told us that the hill was a nod to indigenous mm. mound-building traditions, and so when we learned that, you know. That it had this legacy, this history of being um, this indigenous mound um, acknowledgement, and the fact that people from Columbus were really drawn to it, not even largely knowing what it represented. Mm. Um, when the conversations around the future of Miller Race Park happened, you know we couldn't take our eyes off a of Festival Field because it's it's so flat, it's mm-hmm. so large. Mm-hmm. There's no shade. And it's just kind of held there for some events that happen, you know, a few days out of the year. But really, you know, no one that we were speaking with really mentioned at all any connection to Festival Field. And we thought, I wonder if there's a way to engage that land, you know, amplify the presence of this history but also point to the future potential, um, and 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 in so doing, we came up with this idea of an installation that echoed the form of the hill, completed the circle, which is how those mounds were originally constructed, but also allowed the festival field to still be a festival field. And I've been so thrilled seeing all of the concerts and, you know, all of the events still being able to take place there, uh, but also having you know this kind of um installation in the background as a frame onto all of that so the process is amazing and i now i'm obsessed with columbus on a different level just because (laughs) i've gotten to know so many people that you know obviously i think the size of columbus really helps in terms of being able to coordinate around you know with different city agencies parks department was incredible and you know everyday people that came and helped the installation um it was pretty magical in terms of a process uh, and working with bamboo. I, I, I want to know how you – how your experience was. But, you know, when we originally designed it, we had no idea what we were going to build it out of actually. We thought it was going to be metal and because – largely because I was like obsessed with the precision being, you know, of the form. And then when we were like, well, okay, we can't afford that. Um, that's silly. Um, and bamboo came around as an option. I was like, oh, it's so imperfect. But actually, I really love the imperfection. I think it makes it more dynamic. I think the fact that it's not this, you know, standardized product, you know, timber product, that it was rather this, you know, you had to make decisions piece by piece about where to cut and how to install. And it actually makes the installation much more about craft and way more engaging to build. Um, But I'm curious what you thought.
1: It was a great experience because um, back in Mexico, I used to work as a construction supervisor, but we were working with brick and concrete. I had never had the opportunity to work with bamboo. So something that got my attention very much, one of the persons I was working with, she was like, nowadays people don't really touch raw materials. In our environments, everything is covered in paint or it's covered in some different material, so the only natural material that you actually touch is the granite on your counter in the kitchen. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. So now we were working with a material that was completely natural, that was not processed. And also, as you said, yes, it's it's so imperfect because every piece of bamboo was different. So it put more engaging into building it. But also imperfection made it perfect and more organic and more natural. So it was a really good experience also to make my perspective wider in terms of materials because we usually hear concrete and wood and brick and that's it. We never really think about other options so we are not really aware of the possibilities of a new material yeah so it was a great opportunity to talk to you and to talk to Vince about how we can like change the way of thinking and exploring with different mediums so it was it was fantastic learning how to build something out of a different material and doing it yourself yeah so it was fantastic Vince
0: we learned so much from Vince I mean Um, His passion and dedication for bamboo, I've never seen anyone be Mm -hmm. so passionate. I'm so curious how the conversation went with him. Um, But we learned so much from him and his whole team. I mean, the fact that people drove from South Carolina and Florida and Georgia because of their love of bamboo and wanting to be in Columbus to install this thing. I mean, the fact that the people that grew the bamboo were out there helping build is incredible. Mm -hmm. So I was so energized by that. And I feel challenged, too, having become familiar with the, with the material now to think more expansively about our material use.
1: Exactly. And it's funny that you said before that we have to think about what the landscape wants to be. I feel like it was the same with this project. Mm-hmm. You were thinking mm-hmm. about your project. I think it was steel. You were thinking about yeah. the perfection, precision. Yeah. But maybe the project wanted something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it ended up, it's actually different. better, yeah,
0: it's actually better, and it came
1: out being better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like pe- more people engaging because if it was not for bamboo, like yeah. people wouldn't be engaging. people wouldn't be building these connections. I think we wouldn't be here, yeah, talking, yeah, even. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. it's fantastic. It was the project wanted it to be that way,, yeah,
0: I think so. I think <laughs> so. I mean, um, yeah, i I love too, that we've started to think together with Exhibit Columbus, about the next chapter of the installation. So there's another town in Indiana that's interested in literally taking this installation and moving it there. (laughs) I'm glad
2: to hear it won't be that far away. (laughs) It won't be
0: far away. (laughs) But I also, when I think about what does it mean for landscape architecture to be in Columbus, in Exhibit Columbus, which is so architecture-focused, and installations in general tend to be done by architects. I mean, that's a realm of work that they really take on and focus on and and landscape architects haven't, I think we think of our work as timeless and, you know, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I was pleased that we had the Miller Race Park site and were able to engage in, you know, I mean, you, you can probably see our, um, devotion to what's there because it's literally a mirror of what's there. Yeah. And so you could take it and put it somewhere else, but it doesn't really make as much sense. Um, Whereas, you know, I think some objects, you know, more object-focused architecture, you, you could more easily imagine it. Um, so it was great to be able to have that opportunity to, to, to you know, have Mill Park and, and that expansive site and test some of these ideas in a small scale.
2: And um, we would just like to know, uh, what advice would you have mm-hmm. for uh, students thinking about architecture, Big A? or. Yeah. L or whatever, (laughs) um, or that are currently um, in the process of studying?
0: Sure. Oh, first thing is that it's not easy. (laughs) Um, You got to love this thing, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm in a probably unusual position, I think, being in my late 30s, but being in my late 30s and owning a practice – um a sizable one for you know our for how young of a firm we are or we're 15 um and so my professional trajectory has not been a typical one but having said that no matter what path you take it's difficult and so being clear on your why Mm -hmm. why are you here and focusing on that cuz a lot of things will come at you. You said you have a lecture every month, you know. There's something to learn from those people, but and and grow and expand and, and shift. But if if I think if you have a clarity on your why, then I think your education is is deeper. Your path through the profession makes more sense. You know, you don't get overwhelmed with all of the different influences there in architecture so I think that helped me in while I was in school and in my professional trajectory I'm a professor myself now and I think it helps me when I teach because I ask I'm trying when I work with students and try to guide them on their projects I'm looking for their why sometimes they don't know their why and those are the most difficult students to teach Mm -hmm. um that's not to be dogmatic about your work but It gives you a way of moving and testing and that your growth is in one direction and not spread across many directions. So if you feel unclear about, you know, some semblance of of why, you know, it's tough. But if you have it, I think it just it it really grounds you in a profession that's really tough. That may not have been the the cell that you wanted me to give no, to, you. <laughs> but it's it's advice.
2: Okay, that is solid.
1: Yeah, because uh, once you are in architecture, in the architecture field, you realize how broad it is, yeah. and that you can focus on many things. And sometimes you get excited about everything because once you are involved in design, you cannot unsee right. things. That's very true. But sometimes it's overwhelming, and you are like overstimulated yeah. by so many things, and we tend to lose. To lose the focus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you very, very much for your time, for your words, and for your ideas. Wow. This was amazing. Oh, great. Thank Thank you. you for inviting
0: me and making this space. I think it's so smart to leverage the fact that Columbus is this... Hub of architecture, and so you all are in a very privileged position to be able to be here and you know catch the stream of of folks. So, you know, congratulations to both of you for making this space! Thank Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. Please stay tuned for more interesting interviews. You can follow us on Instagram at IU underscore architecture and on Facebook at J Urban Miller Architecture Program. See you next time.